The Highlander Podcast is brought to you by Outdoor Product Design and Development, a four-year undergraduate degree focused on training the next generation of product creators for the sports and outdoor industries. Learn more at opdd.usu.edu. The Highlander Podcast is sponsored by the Utah Outdoor Association, a business association focused on elevating Utah's outdoor industry through educational programming and events. Their membership consists of Utah's outdoor manufacturers, retailers, outfitters, and guides. Member benefits include networking opportunities, recruitment of talent, and brand promotion. More information about volunteering and membership is available at utahoutdoor.org. On this episode of The History of Gear, we talk with industry legend Sally McCoy. We talk about her time in senior leadership with brands like the North Face, Sierra Designs, and Camelback, her nonprofit work over the years, and the shifting state of the outdoor industry. Welcome back, everyone. This is Chase Anderson, and uh, joining me today as a part of our History of Gear series is Sally McCoy. Um, thanks for joining me. I, I, I should touch on a few things before we dive in, but a Knowles graduate um, held significant uh, senior leadership positions at uh, the North Face, Sierra Designs, Camelback, um, you know, founding member of so many impactful organizations, uh, Conservation Alliance, ORCA, now OIA, um, part um, Outdoor Women's Industry Coalition, now Camber. Uh, you, you've just had such a significant impact on this industry and, and have been so helpful, you know, before we started recording, just talking about the history of this industry. You certainly have a passion for, for telling the story of this, this industry. So it's great to be able to talk to you and, and tell your, your story and, and uh, you know, just help share your place in the history of this industry. So thanks for joining me. Chase, thanks for doing this in the middle of the 2020 pandemic. So. Yeah, we should we should put a timestamp on on the conversation. Um, you know, it'd be fun to do all of these in person. I I wish that we could all be at the outdoor retailer show and and be having these conversations there, um, but unfortunately, we're in the situation that we're in. And and but part of that, you know, in May or well in March when everything really broke out, that's when, uh, you know, I started working from home um, here at the university and and I started having conversations with Bruce Johnson, who started his history of gear project. Um, and I just started to, I, well, I thought, well, why don't I just, you know, I've wanted to start telling stories and record oral histories of people in the outdoor industry. What's stopping me, right? Sometimes we, I feel like we think, well, perfect is the enemy of good, right? Or uh, however that phrase goes. Um, and at this point, I think it's just important that we, we get those stories down, right? Um, so in, in March of 2020, we just started recording with anyone who was willing to share their story. So appreciate you being willing to share yours. Um, you know, we're, we're going to cover a lot of territory because um, you've had such, a, such an impact at, you know, so many different companies and organizations. So I want to do this justice, um, but wanted to start off with really how you got into the outdoor industry. And I know you've shared this in other, other places, but you mind sharing a little bit about your background or at least your first um, exposure to the outdoors? When did the outdoors really um, capture your attention? And, and that's, you know, when you really felt like you wanted to be a part of the outdoor outdoors and the outdoor industry? Well, those are two different things, right? Growing up in North Carolina, I grew up in the, uh, out in Charlotte, which at the time was about 150,000 people. It wasn't the big city it is now, but my, uh, 
father's family was from different sides of the county. And every weekend we'd spend it out on various great aunts and uncles and grandfathers uh, farms. And I loved the woods. Um, and we would, uh, we were lucky in that every August we'd spend time in the North Carolina mountains, black mountains, um, just near the Blue Ridge Parkway. Um, and during that time we got to run pretty much free. We were expected home for dinner, but that was it. And, uh, little place called Montrate. So I always, I just loved the outdoors and loved being outside. And um, my brothers, I had three older brothers and they were all Boy Scouts and um, they got to do some climbing. So that was interesting to me. And my parents didn't do climbing, but they took us my first overnight hike. We went 10 miles, which I'm still, after I did my first one with my kids, I was like, wow, that was crazy. Uh, and in the Great Smoky Mountains, and, um, you know, I was pretty much hooked from that time, um, and so it was more a matter of how do I get outdoors, and love my parents, but let me just tell you, tying rocks around the ends of polyethylenes and setting up tarps on slopes and sleeping in the rain was, I was like, there has to be a better way. Mm, so. Yeah. I badgered the Boy Scouts and they finally let me rappel off the church, but they would never let me go on trips. So I, I found out about Knowles and this was back in, you had to be 13 to go to Knowles and it was uh, an investment, right? It was cheap. Even then, uh, nobody had ever heard of it. And, but I was obsessed with going. And so I convinced my parents that that was going to be a great event. And so I got to do Knowles in 74 when I was 13. And uh, it was epic then. I mean, the Knowles folks would, uh, you know, my unfortunate record is every Knowles course, and I did two of them, an instructor got evacuated. But um, it was it was thrilling in five weeks in the Wind Rivers and like I went in weighing a hundred pounds and carrying a 70 pound pack and came out wearing weighing 90. Um, but it was, uh, you know, I certainly fell in love with the West and I'd fallen in love with the West on kind of a family in the back of the station wagon trip in 68. So, um, I think that was, that submitted my love of the, of the outdoors. And I think that's where I didn't get to really knowing there was an industry. I knew the retailers and I was a co-op member at REI from, I think 12 or 13 on and Alan B's and Jesse Brown's were the key people in Charlotte and you knew them. And then I picked my college based on, they had a great outing club and they had overseas programs. So I went to Dartmouth college and you know, that continued it. And then built trail in the Arkansas cause I couldn't get a job in 82. I wanted to work for the nature conservancy and they weren't hiring anybody. It was a recession uh, of 82. So I built trail and then I got a one-way ticket around the world. And that was actually, believe it or not, I got into China right when they were opening from three cities to 27. And look, everybody was in mile jackets and China was very closed and I didn't know what I was doing. In fact, ended up in the cities I wasn't supposed to be in, got my wallet stolen, climbed a, a Meishan and a pilgrimage. It was a wild trip, that part of it. But I was like, wow. For some reason, it hit me that business affects how people live more than anything. My parents were both doctors, and I thought about being a doctor. I was like, well, you, you know you're doing good work if you're a doctor. Um, 
But after that, I was like, well, you could see China was about to burst forward. It was, uh, and I was like, well, really, business affects how people live. And this was long before double bottom lines. I was like, so I got to learn how to do uh, business. And for some reason, and it was probably youthful immaturity, but, <clears throat> or maybe self-preservation, I didn't want to go to business school. Um, I felt like if I went to business school, I'd end up on Wall Street being an investment banker. And as far as I concerned, they were leeches, which becomes very ironic later in my life. Um, and I can be a very competitive person. I thought, well, if I do that, I'm going to get stuck, you know, working in one of these jobs like investment banking. And I don't want to do that. And um, I wanted to live in Jackson and I wanted to have a, I wanted to be able to get gear. I didn't know that nobody made it yet that would work for me. Um, so that was literally that shred of an idea is what got me into the outdoor industry. I then moved to California and there were a lot of my friends living in any geographic area, anybody Dartmouth College alums, basically that's a beautiful geographic area, you'll find them. So I had friends in Seattle and San Francisco and I just ended up in San Francisco. And that was kind of the hub of or the birthplace in many ways of the outdoor industry, at least in my mind. And then I wrote Patagonia, I wrote, you know, Black Diamond, I wrote everybody um, trying to get a job. And eventually, after working the holidays at Orvis and sitting, doing all kinds of terrible jobs to try to earn a living, I talked my way into an entry-level job in the North Face. So that's, that's how I ended up there. So did you ever have an experience like early on using gear? It, well, it seems like for most people who end up in the outdoor industry, it's the activity first that's that exposure, you know, getting, you know, being surrounded by the gear, using it daily. Was there a moment where you realized someone makes this, right? And I want to be a part of that process. I want to be a part of, um, did, did you have some kind of awakening there or realization I don't think I was that deep. Like many people, I was like, well, I got to get a pro deal on some of this gear. <laughs> and, uh, um, but I, so I think I was motivated to get some of the better deal gear. And then it was, I was more abstractly interested in how to do good business and intuitively thought the outdoor industry, it was products that I knew and that I liked. And, um, and in hindsight, I was dissatisfied with some in some ways. And so I think that's an important drive. You don't go into this business unless, or you didn't in those days, unless you had a real passion for it, I think. Right. Uh, or it was completely accidental and you had a skill. Like I didn't have any of the skills. I didn't have finance skills. I didn't have anything else. So I had my passion and uh, my interest and my willingness to do almost anything in the space. Right. What what were some of those pieces of gear that, that failed and, and maybe helped motivate you or helped you realize that there are people out there who could make it better? Did, were there any, did you have any of those experiences? Oh, well, you have so many, right? <laughs> I mean, you have, we used, you know, at, at Knowles, we used, uh, you know, old wool sweaters that were sewn together for long wool sweaters. You had, um, you know, like I said, my family used polyethylene tarps. So I was like, uh, which are miserable. Um, uh, even in Knowles, we just used flashlights, right? There was no, we didn't carry tents in those days. Um, sleeping bags were, you know, for me, I'm, you know, five, four, 
sleeping bags were huge and lumpy and um, yeah, inefficient. And that was clear to me. And look, I'm, I've been around so long that I remember Insulite was a revelation. So, I mean, the, the, every single thing I touched could be improved. Um, stoves, everything. So it seemed wide open to me at that point. It seems like in my conversations with, um, you know, the, those who've gotten into the outdoors and are part of the history of, of you know, the industry and led to, to a lot of the innovations that we enjoy today, uh, it seems very common, like a Jerry... Jerry and, and Holy Bar, you know, when I was diving into the history of those companies, it, it, it seemed like that was the era of post-World War II um, army surplus. Like there was kind of an influx of gear in the country. And so you had people who couldn't ha- access gear and now are accessing gear um, and quick lies, quickly realizing some of the deficiencies of some of those pieces of equipment. So it, it kind of seems like innovation is always preceded by someone using something that doesn't work, right? Uh, well, right. I mean, Dick Kelty, I still have a 1976 Kelty Tioga pack. Um, and then the Lowe brothers came in with their internal frame pack. And they're, I mean, to this day, they have different uses, but it was um, so much more. I mean, my first backpacking trip, you know, I carried a little rucksack with towels strapped to the to the straps and there was no waist belt. And let me just tell you, that's miserable. So, um, yeah, I, I do think the outdoors were as a turnoff, frankly, because, um, in those days it was more about, Oh yeah, you just got to endure it and tough it out or whatever. And then I think, I think innovation made it a little more accessible for people and more comfortable. And, and that was fun. Right, right. Well, do you mind sharing a little bit more, you know, about that, you know, how you got into the North Face? You, you kind of teed that up, but um, how did you break in? Well, I, I, I wrote letters, which will seem foreign to people today. Yes, we didn't have, we didn't even have faxes. Um, so I wrote letters. I begged for interviews. Uh, Jack Gilbert became somebody that had mercy on me at the North Face. He was actually kind of phasing out at that time, but he was, I always wrote him and anybody I met thank you notes and kept trying to get a job there. But I wrote Denise Friend at REI, I wrote Peter Metcalf at Black Diamond, I wrote everybody. I would try to find out, I'd I'd call people at the companies, I'd talk to the um, receptionist and try to find out who did what. And um, because no internet and um, you had to be, scrappy in those days and and 82 83 was recession period and um it was certainly before there was a boom again it was actually kind of the first real period there had been this really big growth as i understand it and some of the other people you're interviewing will confirm or deny it but the outdoor industry boomed right in the 60s um there were some transitions in the 60s early 70s i think that might have been when sierra designs was sold the first time, but um, they it had kind of boomed, and then there was a little bit of a lull. And so, trying to get in at this time, I think was was hard. Um, but so I eventually uh, got in at an entry level position in the office of the retail part of the North Face. And at the time, I think it's super interesting to think. So this was April of '84 is when I got a job there, and Every single thing the North Face made was made here in Berkeley. Um, mm-hmm. The factory was here. 
There were 18 different languages spoken in the factory. Um, it was a fascinating creative period. And by the time I left, which was the very end of 1990, beginning of 91, uh, there'd been a mass migration. I mean, between 87 and 90, um, a, a huge part of all the product lines went overseas. Now, and, and ironically, of course, the needlework and the pricing in China made for another burst of innovation because of course the pricing and what we could do. And, but I, I learned so much from, it was lucky for me. I ended up at the North face because North face did everything. It did, you know, retail, maybe not well, but um, they bought a bar. They did retail. They, they, um, but more importantly, they did design from scratch and in manufacturing and um, we're committed to it. We made investments and we had, uh, we had one of the first automated, I don't think it ever did much, but we had one of the first automated lines to make our sewing lines better. And we had um, the most brilliant engineers in the North Face were um, Asian women. So um, it was a fascinating time. Right. Where, I guess when did you transition into... I guess you were, you were kind of just doing, what, what, what were you doing at that time? Retail in the office? Um, I, I, I basically was doing the mail order, which okay. real, retailers didn't really want us doing. But when people really wanted product, they were like, I remember to this day, there were nine steps in trying to get a product out the door. And I was like, Lord, this is so boring <laughs> and tedious. We have to make this shorter. So I'd go around and lobby people to help me make that process shorter. And then I looked for mistakes and costs of goods sold on the computer. Um, it, was, uh, it was super tedious. Both of those jobs probably shouldn't have existed in a more efficient place. But it got me in the doors. And when seven months, I talked my way upstairs to being an assistant sales manager, um, which at the time in the equipment and outerwear areas. Um, and the guy that came over to be the sales manager had run demand planning essentially at the factory. So actually he taught me a tremendous amount about, um, you know, that I had access into the factory and whatnot. And together we learned sales and distribution. And he only, Jim only stayed in that job a year before he got hired, I think by Royal Robbins maybe. And they divided the area and they gave me equipment and I was, I think 26, maybe, um, 25, maybe, um, 25 years old. And so I learned a tremendous amount from the sales reps. I spent the time on the road the next two years, basically on the road. And uh, Mark and the whole design area were, nobody was particularly interested in equipment then. So I was able to, you know, say, hey, this is what we want. And how about this? And how about that? And it was, you worked with the pattern makers, worked with the designers. It was super fun was really a tremendous learning opportunity for me because nobody cared. Skiwear was what was hot and they didn't care necessarily. They were like, Oh yeah, we kind of need equipment and she seems to like it. So, <laughs> so this was about 84, 85. Uh, I probably no 85 and 86 were the two years I probably did spent doing sales management because 87, um, 87, I was, um, lucky enough to the North Face decided to sponsor an Everest climb and Everest had been a little bit out of fashion for a while and no American woman had summited, which is hard to believe, right? And in 87, and anyway, they said, well, 
Tom Lane, who was the skiwear sales manager, was trying to get Snowbird to their uniform business. So the ski business at that time was the hottest area, which is hard to understand for people probably. And Tom was a great sales manager and he was really wanted Snowbird. And Dick Bass had been the first guy to summit, um, do the seven summits. And um, was a great, interesting guy. And so basically part of getting it was great, we'll sponsor this Everest climb, but why don't we send one of our own? And they looked around and they were like, well, you seem to be the only one who could do this, so why don't you go do this? And so I got paid to go on the climb, and fortunately there were some smart people. Uh, Mary Scott was like, we need good pictures, so um, we got Chris Noble to join as part of that. Chris was a very famous at the time ski and climbing photographer, and um, it actually ended up, I thought I scored, but in the, in the final analysis, North, it was one of the best business moves North Face did. Um, because I, um, we took, we had the mountain jacket, um, and the mountain, the bibs, um, the earliest versions, but coming out of that became the impetus for, um, what became the expedition systems, the Lodzi and the Denali and things that are kind of vintage at this point iconic um and uh it really began the shift from ski wear to outerwear and kind of that positioning and chris's photographs were beautiful and it's sort of unbelievable to think about it but north face had earlier had a relationship with nedulad and had those pictures but our, our cupboards were bare uh and so i came back from that and the company had been was essentially for sale so i came back and November of 87. Uh, we did not summit. It was the worst storm in 40 years that blew us off. It was the same day the stock market collapsed. Wow. Uh, October 19th, 1987. Um, I think we had one of the first people that was guided. Uh, it was Steve Fawcett, who later set the record for the balloon around the world or something like that. Nice hmm. guy. Um, I think he paid like 40 grand to go. And he literally went to Camp One, and I took the radio call that night, and he said, call me a yak. And I'm like, okay, yak. And he's like, no, I want you to call me a yak. I said, Steve, there's no communication. You know, we, we're letters are three weeks away. Like we, somebody's got to hike down. I mean, what are you talking about? Like I've decided I can't summit. And I don't remember whether it, what he thought, but he was prescient and he actually left and made it back. And I think, I think he was a commodities. Tra I can't remember what he traded, but he saved himself a fortune by being back at home. Wow. Um, and that storm hit and uh, killed six people in the Kumbo, but killed nobody mm. on Everest. I mean, the storm of 96 was not nearly as severe, but people were high up on the mountain. And uh, But we didn't know. We didn't know a lot then. We didn't know that um, this was a post-monsoon climb. And look, May is the time to summit if you want to summit. Um, mm. And you were out of touch. And that year we had to um, – I had to – well, walking with most of the gear all the way from Jiri. So you had a, uh, it was a much, a much more, it was totally different than I think the way things are now, but it was still, but it was, it was great fun and it was fun for me, a great opportunity for me, but it was weird to come back and the company was in turmoil and was, we were growing wholesale at 40%, retail was losing money, but um, there was not agreement in management. And so I came back and people were marching through on a sale process. I mean, I think Nike turned us down and the price was 
five million and assumed liabilities. Wow. And you can hear some of the others if that's true. But that I remember that very clearly. I was like, wow. Um, and then by the spring of, I think, May of 88, Bill Simon bought it. And that's when I became uh, basically in charge of marketing. No, all product first and then marketing too. Mm. Um, and um, so that began another chapter of the North Face, really. It's quite different. Um, Right. What was it like for you to, I mean, you were quickly rising in the ranks and getting a variety of experiences, seeing different parts of the business in, uh, did it feel like a short amount of time? It seems like a short amount of time for anyone. What, what was that experience like to, to just get to know the business so quickly and, and, you know, really jump through a few different positions? Well, it was, uh, it was a great opportunity. Um, I was, uh, it was the perfect size company. I was interested in almost every area and people were willing to talk to me. And I do think that, look, there were extraordinarily talented people at the North Face then. It was, uh, I count myself lucky. And I think the, you know, the generation of leadership, the Jack Gilberts and Mark Erickson's and Haps and everybody else, they'd gone through a couple of cycles already. In some ways they might've been bored and, I was just extraordinarily passionate about it, and um, and I won't. I wouldn't say that one of the unsung heroes of building the outdoor industry were the reps. The reps were the conduits to the store. So I was, uh, but at the same time, my interest became still on how do you do business and how do you do it ethically. And I did spend a bunch of time thinking I'd go back to kind of a divinity school, business school, and. Uh, it was when I got the opportunity to really lead, uh, you know, the, what I consider the key areas of the company that I decided not to do that. Um, and uh, that was a critical decision for me. Um, and then I became disillusioned, actually, once we were growing the company and it was clear to me um, that we weren't going to be able to keep our promises. Like I spent a bunch of time in Asia in China, in like in a new Odyssey who had bought us was kind of a house of cards. I mean, I spent and uh, I, you know, I couldn't, I mean, really the way, reason I left is because we weren't going to be able to keep our promises to the retailers and to everybody else. It wasn't the quality of gear was bad. It was not. It was, we weren't going to deliver and we weren't doing the things that were going to make it better. And um, I felt like I was leading people to invest a lot of time and, you know, a ton of work to make something happen and it wasn't going to get all the way to fulfillment. Um, and it was basically because of uh, leadership at that time. I mean, Bill, Bill Simon's an incredibly creative guy, but there was so much going on um, that uh, it was a little disillusioned. So, you know, I, I think I, you know, I quit by the time I was either 29 or 30 probably 30 and Bill wanted me to take a leave of absence, but I went and um, worked on a book with Paul Hawken at that point um, more about what I was interested in. Mm. So while it was an incredible opportunity, it was also a time that didn't have a lot of clarity and I didn't know anything about capital and how to keep your promises. And, but I just knew what I thought was, you know, what I could participate in, what I couldn't. It, it kind of seems like that whole era, I don't know if this is the same for other companies at the time, but it seemed like there was a lot of buying and selling going on. 
kind of a big transition phase. Well, at least for, for the North Face, to say the well, least. But bought, bought Sierra Designs in 86, mm-hmm. which is sort of crazy, too. And yes, it was a consolidation phase because Odyssey bought Marmot and bought North Face, Sierra Designs, Head. I don't remember who else they owned. Um, and it, in hindsight, now I understand a little bit more. There were, you know, really high interest rates and it was hard to get funding. And the, the, none of us probably knew how to plan our businesses quite like that. And you were also shifting from domestic making to overseas. And now I understand it's like, okay, the capital requirements. Like I remember at North Face, they bought Sierra Designs and they didn't really kind of realize the cash planning and they put their LCs out for Sierra Designs tents or whatever. And they didn't have enough money to buy what they needed to make at the North Face because the timing was different, right? It was, it was, I mean, you look back at now and it seems basic, but I mean, imagine interest rates were probably 14 or 15% back then. And um, operating cycles were long on cash. I mean, some of that boring business stuff came into play. I imagine that was a, a crash course for you and, and a lot that you would then take on to your other future leadership positions. Uh, you know, how much did that, that period of time give you an education for you know, wh- where you would be going you know, in the next few years? You know, I, I look back, I'm like, wow, I should have understood more um, than I did. And maybe I should have gone to business school. Um, what I took away is, look, there were so many incredibly creative people at the North Bay. To this day, it was uh, one of the most exciting environments and one of the most diverse environments, which I think really gets lost in a lot of the telling. Um, but the diversity, I mean, 18 languages, think about that. You know, in our sample sewing, we had, you know, you know, three different languages even in the sample room, right, of the design department. Um, it, was, um, it was fun, and for me, growing up in the South, I was great exposure to uh, particularly mostly Asian cultures, Filipino and Chinese and Korean, um, but... Uh, so I, I loved all that, but I, I think about it and I don't, because when we went to Odyssey, the, um, they got funded basically from the Japan real estate. So if I kind of look at it back now, I didn't understand capital. And so I went on to understand that, and my advice to people is pay attention to who owns it and what their goals are, um, what their real goals are and how they respond to that. So I think... I then worked on a nonprofit, uh, this book. Well, I worked for this nonprofit, and then I came back eventually. Um, and I did Sierra Designs because I felt like, well, these are really ethical people that own it. And they were ethical, but they should have owned an apartment building. They weren't willing to invest and grow. So I kind of did, if you look at my career, I went through these things before finally deciding to be an investment banker and learning about capital. And then it was understanding the levers that let me go to Camelback and basically in a, like a, it could have gone either way with Camelback's capital structure. And that's a whole nother story. That's a fascinating story. So I think it was, if you look at the arc of my business career, it is really understanding um, how capital can enable or, or disempower what the culture is. And so it's not a very, interesting thing for most people and maybe on this cat but broadcast but it's it's true well no i think that's definitely a, a huge takeaway and i think it's relevant to the industry that we see now right i i don't know the 
I'd be curious your perspective on the state of the industry now. Um, it, it's interesting you mentioning the consolidation that was happening, and and I feel like we live in an industry that that is, you know, really uh, there's a lot of consolidation happening um, right now. So maybe some parallels that were, you know, between the two. But I don't know if you could, you know, if there was more cons- consolidation then or now. But um, I, I think those are super relevant lessons to just kind of the current state of the industry and how businesses run now. But um, you know, what what were some of the values that you you know, you already carried your own values um, to your role at, at the North Face. Are there any that, that you feel like really stuck out um, that the company was promoting at the time? You, you mentioned diversity um, being being a huge, um, you know, focal point there at the time. But, you know, what are, what are some of the values that maybe were strengthened or new values that you developed by being there? Well, keep in mind, I was young and naive and I was just like, great, these are all going to be people who are really committed to... Uh, <laughs> really committed to uh, the environment and, you know, all these things. And uh, look, it wasn't equal for women. It wasn't equal for, uh, you know, racially or any other way. Um, just because, not because people weren't broad-minded, but we're part of our own culture, right? So I don't want to whitewash it. I mean, I had to go in and uh, I found out that I was not making equal wages with somebody that, I could argue was less productive. And the, the, the president told me that I was, uh, well, you know, he had to provide for his wife. And I was like, well, his wife is a partner in a law firm and makes four times what we do. And besides which, I think that's illegal. Uh, so <laughs> so uh, I eventually won that, by the way. But, um, but it was not. And actually, it was Jim Carrey who basically, when I got promoted to the upstairs in sales he basically gave me a list of what everybody made the company and he said you know you'll hear rumors of this i just prefer to show you the reality and that was like so strikingly ahead of like what people are talking about now um and i was thinking well i don't know if you should do this but it was very illustrative uh but i would be with executives and you know they were it was super fun like you were you were accessible at parties and various things but you know, I think, you know, Hap would tell you himself that the benefit of being in the barrier is you could get smart, motivated people that wanted to be in the industry and you didn't have to pay them a lot. I remember somebody told me going into the industry, somebody that worked at Trailwise said, look, become an investment banker. You'll work just as much here for a quarter of the money. But money wasn't what was motivating me. And that didn't strike me as funny until years later. Um, I was just like, yeah, I don't want to be one of those people. Not even really understanding what they did, by the way. But I think, uh, but I've gotten off topic. What, what, what is it you want to? Well, I think you're speaking exactly to that. Maybe values that um, maybe right. if, if the, the company espoused or, or said that they espoused or maybe values that, that um, you know, the company wasn't promoting that you noticed and, and that maybe helped bolster, um, you know, things that you wanted to, to promote and, you know, companies that you would, you know, lead in the future. Um, I, yeah, you're definitely speaking to that, that question yeah. now, but. Well, I will give the leadership team at the North Face credit. I mean, the one thing, and I think, sorry, that's my pooch. Um, the one thing that the, they were always uh, consistent on was the lifetime warranty and 100% standing behind the product. I mean, North Face had a state-of-the-art lab. They um, took all of that beyond incredibly seriously. 
Um, we led, we had a great warranty area. We called it repairs in those days. Um, and there was, you know, you were never on thin ice or anything else as long as it was about the quality of the product. Right. I mean, I think that was, um, and the lifetime warranty. And I think all those were real values. And I don't think there were differences in the management team in the, in the latter days before I went to a sale, but that was never, ever in question, even when they were in, you know, in a cash crunch or anything else. So I think that that's uh, important. And I honestly think that's a core value in the outdoor industry. Um, they lived that and they lived the, um, they went on and even, you know, Bill Simon was the one who is credited by Wally, um, CEO of REI at the time, uh, with the concept, although Bill didn't remember at the time we were driving to the, found, the founding of the uh, Conservation Alliance, of the idea. And the idea for the Conservation Alliance came, they were promoting a backpack tax. This comes up and it's coming up again. You know, why do people that hunt game have to buy a special stamp and people that, you know, hike don't and the argument from the industry, which I think is a good one, is look, we pay all these tariffs, extraordinary amount of tariffs. Our goods are really highly taxed. Um, but we wanted to be proactive, and Yvonne was very instrumental, Yvonne and Paul Tebble from Patagonia, saying 100% pass-through. And so there was, I mean, North Face and Patagonia did not mix in those days. Some of the executives, you know, knew each other, but certainly the ownership didn't and um that was the beginning and i would say bill gets credit for helping to bridge that it was really wally that brought north face and patagonia together in the same room and then george grabner was at kelty and so that was a that was also a key value of like we will like north face could have used that 10 grand which sounds like nothing nowadays but it was significant money then for anything else but the industry decided to swing to its better angels on that move. And um, I think that that, so I think there's a sincere push around conservation. Um, and there were things that I think were missing that were obvious to me, I think from my own values of people need an opportunity to advance, people need as much equal treatment, people need like, I mean, that's, you get, the more we've gone on as a society, you see, your own implicit bias, you, you learn and you're continually learning. I'm learning every day, but how do you begin to build that into an organization? And, and I think I saw organizational opportunity in you know, people that had great talents that were not as effectively being used. And I don't think it was out of spite. I think it was, lit, frankly, interest at the time or whatever else. It was, um, you, are a, you are captive a little bit in some of your thinking around the time. But uh, I would say, I would say those fundamentals, like the, the part where I wouldn't, and I don't think this happened during the, I think this happened more as Odyssey couldn't deliver the, the, uh, we always tried to be straightforward with our partners. I mean, I, I think that was a value as well. You, so you, you, you brought up the Conservation Alliance, which I'm glad you did, because I feel like that's a good transition point. Um, wh when did you start getting involved in that? Um, yeah, that sounds like while you were still at the North Face. Well, I went to that founding meeting, and that was, I think it was 89. And um, the great thing about the Conservation Alliance was it was very simple. REI was going to take care of the money, and Patagonia was going to advise on the grantees 
um, which became a strength during, certainly during, you know, John Sterling's time. Um, so it was a very simple, the organization was set up and after the first meeting, um, it became, it became the industry united behind it. And then later it became, you know, but it was very simple to run. And then I can't remember, it must have been, might have been Bruce Hamilton who asked me to be on the ORCA organizing committee. And that's what became OIA. So I later came back um, during a transition period of the Conservation Alliance and served as chair. But that was a later phase. I think that was, I'd have to look, but near 2000 maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, I think I'm getting, that's wrong. That was OIA, it was near 2000. I think it was, I was chair and maybe 09 or 10 or somewhere in there of the Conservation Alliance. Well, you were involved in so many of these these organizations outside of of your primary role at these different companies. I could see how you you get some of the the timeline mixed up there. Um, what you because at the same point in time you're involved with uh, Orca, creation of Orca. Is that eighty nine? It's also eighty nine. Okay. And so basically, I went from that founding meeting of the Conservation Alliance to well, that one's going to be simple to run. North Face needs to be involved in this. You know, and it was Steve Pfeiffer and Belinda Sanda and Woodward and I think Denise Friend and maybe Connie Sell from A16. And they're like, you need to be on this organizing committee. And Al Gunner did a tremendous amount. Al Gunner was a rep and a really smart, smart guy. He just died this year in Colorado. And it was a volunteer board and it was a, it was a heavy lift. It was a super heavy lift. I remember one of the funniest things was we, um, you know, initially we didn't even have a part-time, um, you know, ED. And we were basically trying to figure out what, what we were. Um, and sporting goods manufacturers gave us 10 grand uh, uh, gift. And we decided we wanted to help retailers and help them put on events. And that's when we hired Michael Hodgson to do the, the event guidebook. And we were casting around. And I remember the first time we went to D.C. because we thought we needed a voice in D.C., um, but a lot of people were like, the hell with DC, we don't want to go there. But a bunch of us went in, uh, actually this leaks into 90, this leaks to when I was in Sierra Designs in 93. And I think we stayed drunk for three days in a hotel room and we might have, I don't even think we met with a staffer, but that began our presence, which later, you know, you, you know, a decade later we were meeting with, I remember the first, uh, secretary of interior we met with was Gail Norton. And that's a funny story. Um, and later went on, and of course, Sally Jewell went on to be secretary. But it began with deep ambivalence, which I think a lot of the outdoor industry feels about big corporations and that sort of thing. I mean, we were kind of a counterculture industry in many ways. It's now become a little more corporate. Right. It definitely has, especially with, with a company like the North Face, well, being part of VF Corporation, right? It's like the, the industry has definitely shifted more that way and, and is very active, active uh, in those conversations. But what, what was some of the mo- main motivation um, behind creating ORCA or Outdoor Recreation Coalition of America? Is that right? Did I get all of my letters right? Uh, well, well, that was such a bad uh, name. I was like, really a whale of an idea? I was kind of like, oh, <laughs> um, it was to have a voice in D.C. Mm-hmm. and to be kind of organized. I think Al Gunner was very in the forefront of understanding that um, we probably ought to quantify ourselves and. Um, you know, 
at different times, I mean, I think we're seeing, look, with this pandemic, we're seeing an explosion of interest in the outdoor industry. And I've been serving, I just finished this chair a year ago of the uh, Outdoor Foundation, which is really targeted towards engagement and really engagement across vast communities. Um, and we can talk about that separately, but at various times, there have been lulls in participation and interest in our, in our uh, activities. And so I think um, some of these folks were pressing about seeing, we probably ought to organize collaboratively and whether it's identifying how to support participation or whether it's having a voice and that could be anything from tariffs to candidly of course the the land issues um and that was the that was and then supporting retailers which i don't think i think it's always been very difficult to figure out how to do that effectively and i think it's every time i've been actively involved in oa it's it's always that difficult question how do you do that and so um but those were the, in the early days, that was what we were trying to figure out. And we were amateurs at it. So who, who was the kind of the driving force behind the creation of that organization? Was, was there one company that really drove that and was the convener or were a lot of people kind of feeling this need, you know, being drawn to some idea like this and you kind of naturally came together? Who, who really sparked that? I'm not a hundred percent sure. Steve Pfeiffer and, um, at M, uh, MEI, which it doesn't exist anymore, but Steve was a great guy. It was a travel company, and I don't think it exists anymore, but I don't say that. Um, Melinda Santa, Backpackers Pantry, Bob Woodward at Snooze, Al Gunner, who was a rep for North Face. And um, there, I'm sure there were others, but off the top of my head. Um, and then North Face held the – that's how I ended up involved was North Face. There needed to be a meeting in person, right? Mm-hmm there needed to be a meeting in person and we held it and there were some other people I have to try to figure out who they were, but really there was an extraordinary amount of volunteer time. It was an extraordinarily heavily lift early on. Uh, Connie self at uh, a 16, uh, Denise friend and Connie became the first chair and then Denise went after her and we then hired a part-time ED and, but it was really trying to coalesce a counterculture industry around a need for us to collaborate on some business topics. Mm-hmm. You know, and land in, in lobbying was a business topic too. And quantifying the industry was a lot of people were like, why would we do that? You know? So um, there were, as you can imagine, it was wonderful being in a, a small counterculture industry with a strong retailer base, but winds of change were already beginning to happen then. Right. How, how does it feel? I mean, I feel like, was it last year, maybe the year before is when the Bureau of Economic Analysis added outdoor, the outdoor industry to some of their metrics? Um, um, I mean, that's, I, oh, there we go. We got our, another guest. Who's this? This is Sydney the pointer. <laughs> um, I, how does that make you feel being a part of some of these early conversations that have led, you know, it, maybe it took longer than, than maybe hoped, but um, it seems like at the federal level, there's, there, there's that recognition, right? At least, at least economic impact of the industry is being measured. And certainly at the state levels now with, with state offices of outdoor recreation popping up, especially in the last, you know, 10 years. Um, I, I think you can trace a lot of that indirectly or directly back to 
you know, this, this focus, a group coming together and, and pushing the need to uh, have these yeah, conversations. No, there, <laughs> look, Orca saved the climbing industry in 1991, along with really REI, Dan Dusich and Terry Perlman, and of course the climbers themselves and the climbing companies. But I, I became solidified in a need for OIA when I saw that, wow, we almost, climbing almost became something that was sold out of the back of cars like drugs mm. because there was such a liability crisis. And um, OIA provided the forum for the climbing specialty group to get together and to deal with that. And so I was like, yes, there's a real need here. And certainly the quantifying became OIA did their own study, and that was cited. All the, Any of you who have been on lobbying trips have cited that. And then to finally get it made as part of the federal accounting of it and get it statewide in the statewide offices. But there's an opportunity to unify those, and that's one of the reasons I stepped back on the Outdoor Foundation board was because our engagement, you know, we've quantified it, but now we have to quantify participation and do it down to congressional level. So one thing I've learned is everything has to become congressional level or certainly state to have impact because our positive economic impact is huge. And I think the story we haven't told as well because it's harder in the days of, you know, post-Citizens United. Sydney, come here. Come on. Is, um, is that we're small businesses, right? That, that study counts the motel besides the river put in, right? It's not just your outdoor shops and your, and your gear companies you've heard of. Mm -hmm. And so we don't have the voice. And so, but we are a very American activity. And if you look at the 1986 president's reports on Americans outdoors, 66% of Americans identified themselves as outdoors people in that report. Now, to my knowledge, that hasn't been done again, but I would say the participation study done by the Outdoor Foundation shows how drastically that's dropped. And we, as we become urbanized, that hasn't, that identification hasn't happened. But now we're seeing, and I think it's terribly important we support this, um, they've got four trial cities of Thrive Outside, but we're also tracing activity, which the only bright side of the pandemic in my mind is this, that you have found Americans all over the place identifying with their local parks and going outdoors and the expression in different um, communities. And it's not, it's not the outdoor industry telling them how to go outside. It's them deciding how to go outside. And it's very important. It's community led. And I think that engagement and participation combined with economic impact will help our country make better policies. So you can tell I feel passionately about it and I feel like we're, we're close to making that happen. So I would say if you look at it, OA made a huge impact on quantifying the industry, but also it was the Eco Index and all the people working on that that really created HIG and created a lot of that. I mean, we've been leaders in some important areas by influence, frankly. And I think that that's uh, hopefully that will happen again with will be part of a movement with the Outdoor Foundation as well. Right. Absolutely. And I think um, especially now um, there's you know. We, I think it's been interesting, um, you know, this, this idea of participation and this def definition of what outdoor activity is, mm -hmm. I feel like is expanding um, in, in a lot of good ways, um, in all the best ways, I, I feel like, um, to include more, more people, more activities, um, 
you know, more locations, right? I, I feel like the industry, and maybe you can speak to this certainly, um, feel like the, the industry really does pride itself on doing the extreme, right? You know, going to the highest peak, um, you know, doing the toughest climb, um, you know, uh, just, you know, doing the extreme. And we like to highlight those, those activities. I think there's a lot of value in that. But I think we've also seen um, the need to recognize and value and validate well, the trail starts outside of wherever you live, right? Mm-hmm. Out your front door. That's where the trail starts for some people. Um, and so, um, especially now during the pandemic, right? It's like cycling has, has gone up significantly, just walking, um, running. Um, you know, a lot of people live um, nowhere near mountains, but that's, that's my idea of what the outdoor industry is in a lot of ways. And I grew up in the shadow of the, of the Wasatch here. Um, so that definitely influences it. But I, I feel like we're starting to see the industry recognize and, you know, expand that definition, you know, make that umbrella larger um, to include more people from different backgrounds, different activities. But what are your thoughts on that? And, and certainly OIA, ORCA um, has, has played a role in that. I think that that is the, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, it has expanded. I mean, you have Trust for Public Land now moving most of their efforts to park within 10 minutes, right? We're part Mm -hmm. of a a collaboration and a movement. We just haven't, we need to identify to make it conscious. And that's what the Outdoor Foundation is trying to do right now. And it's getting communities. And these are, you know, Atlanta, Georgia and Grand Rapids and Oklahoma City and San Diego. And you have um, Native American led communities. You have, black communities, you have uh, Latinx communities, deciding what outdoors means for them and getting multiple repeated exposures. So um, I think most of the people in the outdoor industry at this point are like, we're great with whatever you want to do outside. It was probably 1991. I left the North Face. I was working on this nonprofit and I walked in a Marmot store. Marmot used to have multiple stores and there was a store, um, Lock Miller owned it, and it was in Berkeley, great, you know, great famous store. And I was in there, and it was a store noted for hardcore. And I was kind of walking around, and it's an old converted church, and I was in kind of their shrine to outerwear. And um, I was like, wow, I'm feeling kind of weird. I was like, what am I feeling? And the staff had been pretty dismissive of me. They didn't know who I was. And uh, I was like, wow, I'm feeling intimidated. And I was like, that's pretty weird because, you know, I've been in charge of design at the North Face, so I know everything about everything in this jacket, and I was on an Everest climb three years ago, right? Like, if I'm feeling intimidated, what does everybody else feel? And um, that's what the industry was like in 1990. And then you pivot to now, and I think you are seeing, right? I mean, the face of retail has changed dramatically since the advent of the smartphone. Um, But I think you see people willing um, to not be condescending towards any sort of outdoor activity. But we were talking, I was on the Outdoor Foundation Board, and we were talking to one of the executives at the National YMCA. And they run a tremendous number of, as you probably know, young people's camps and outdoor ed and and we were talking about um you know many things and she said well and you know the marketing from your industry doesn't really help us 
And I expected to kind of hear, you know, something about the extreme, right? You guys are too extreme and this, that, and the other. And I said, oh, well, what, do you, what are you thinking of specifically? And she goes, well, like this hashtag van life thing, which of course is the industry softening itself. She's like, hashtag van life doesn't make sense to most of our uh, community because, you know, they're trying to escape living in cars. Mm. And I was like, yeah, we still got a ways to go, don't we? Um, I said, that's not going to go anywhere in the short term because you're still going to have to have brands that as- do aspirational things. But I think it, it, it highlights the wide divide we have in this country that projects like Thrive Outside Cities and stuff are seeking to have communities direct themselves and reclaim the outdoors as, uh, as a, an American right. I mean, I think it's still a bipartisan issue, and obviously I think it's important. I think it's a new – I think we should embrace that and, and work towards that. And, look, it's very audacious goal of really creating community and creating outdoors people. Right. It's, it's been amazing to see a lot of the work that you know, the Outdoor Foundation is championing and, and rallying a lot of the brands to, to participate in. And, and it seems like the industry has always been values driven. Um, and it's nice to see, especially now, a, a lot of effort being put um, you know, behind this around increasing participation across the board um, and creating safe places, you know, helping people feel safe, participating in, the, in these active uh, activities, uh, you know, even just here locally in our community, I've, I'm talking with a, a small nonprofit just started um, two cross country, you know, one's a cross country coach, another um, an Olympian um, here in our community. They just wanted to help get our, we have a pretty large refugee community, um, mostly from, let's see, it's Somalia, Eritrea, um, they get placed here and, and, uh, they wanted to help get these kids out running mostly. So it's a running club. Um, and we live about five minutes from our, our Canyon, um, with a lot of great trail access and trail running. And, and most of these kids have never gone up the Canyon. It's just, you know, they don't feel comfortable, right. Or no one's ever taught them how so many of these things that are second nature, right. Are not second nature. Um, and so, and I know the outdoor foundation is doing so much to, to support fund, you know, um, you know, efforts like this. So, um, I, think I think it's more across the board too. I mean, you look at Rue Mapp, who's a brilliant social mm-hmm. entrepreneur with her outdoor Afro, which is very much middle class and upper middle class led, but taken, you know, their own experience. And for the African American community, it's, I mean, I'm a southerner. It's like they're reclaiming uh, their space in the outdoors and in the woods. And, you know, that is so gratifying to see. And so, um, you know, I think there's a bunch of exciting things. I think, look, there are some companies that are doing great in this pandemic in the outdoor industry, and there's some that are not and devastated and near the edge. And so I think it does speak to the community that we're trying to, you know, we're trying to move through this. This is another period of dislocation. But if you look at it, and certainly my time in the industry spans, you know, 35 years now, um, there have been these phases and uh, the one thing being outdoors teaches you is you have to evolve the conditions. And so for me, the organizations and the businesses, as long as you keep your values in place, it's, it's the, the skills you learn outdoors are applicable. You have right. to look at conditions, you have to change. And I think that's why I've, I've loved my time. I've had a great time in the industry. Right. Well, that's great. Um, 
Well, we, we, you know, I, I, we'll probably touch on some of the nonprofit work that you've, you've been involved in because, you know, you're still involved in that. Um, but I wanted to touch on, so that, that transition from the North Face, um, you get the opportunity to then go and, and be the president of Sierra Designs. Um, you know, what went into that decision of wanting to jump back into it? It sounds like with the North Face, you, you took a step back. Um, you know, what, what was the motivation behind getting back into the game? I worked uh, for a nonprofit that I, I, well, Paul Hawken, who did Smith and Hawken, actually had a book which was on the subject of why I went into business, which was uh, really, we would call it now double bottom lines. But um, he, he had a brilliant synthesis of basically business is killing the world, but it's the only thing that can save the world. Just sort of, uh, just really a terrific. He, he, he had um, a contract to write the book. And he first wanted me to work for Smith and Hawk, and I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to do product for a while. And so we said, well, why don't you write the book with me? We had a contract to write this book. It later became the Ecology of Commerce. And I did the research. It was very exciting, um, very different, right, to be suddenly by myself. But he was having – there were issues at Smith and Hawk, and, I mean, they were going through um, – Anyway, it became a period where he eventually left Smith and Hawkins, but I had gotten to a point where we kind of had to change our thesis. And, and I was not excited about writing a book at that point. A good friend of mine had died, and I was with somebody who was in that business transition because we were essentially writing about doing good business. Um, so I left. I get credit in the paper version of it. Um, uh, but... Then it led me to work in Colombia doing Coca. I actually did product. I did product for Macy's and A16 and a bunch of people, REI bought it, which were, I should have stayed in it, right? It was socks combined with this waste residue, which we brought from Colombia because we were getting Colombian Coca farmers to grow silk rather than cocaine because, mm. you know, fascinating thing. But anyway, I finally realized that Colombia was an oligarchy and we weren't going to be able to change it beyond our 40 farm families. So I decided, well, I should take what I've learned and go back in. And I had no idea how disrupted Sear Designs was. I should have, but I thought, well, these people really want to buy it. And I think they're ethical people. It was George Grabner who had done the, the uh, Conservation Alliance, so I knew him. And uh, that began Sear Designs, which was, in hindsight, you'd never do it. It was the craziest turnaround ever. I mean, they had this terrible focus focus stuff that was coming back in the door. It had been Jack and Paul had left it for six months before. And basically Bill Simon was trying to kill it because he was going to buy the North face and they were trying to kill it because they were doing mountain hardware. And you had this product coming back in, you had flat sleeping bags from light loft, and then you had 10% defect in tents and tents were probably their best category. So if I really thought about it, I wouldn't have done that job, but it became a tremendously fun experience. Uh, and we changed, I would say, even though the brand kind of got ruined when they moved it out of California, they, I think we, we tried to make um, Bob Swanson and Mark, George Marks proud of us, returning Sierra Designs to its really, Sierra Designs did some really innovative things um, in bags and jackets and stuff early. And we were in service to that. It was, um, it sounds funny to say, but... Um, we thought we knew the real brand, not the one that had been kind of messed around with product that came back and micro lights and stuff like that. So it might have been a little tilting at windmills, but I think we were successful. We doubled the business and made it profitable and 
revolution into product and did women's sleeping bags that were enormous home run. Um, and Sydney's a little bored. Come on. I'm tired of all this talking. Sit. <laughs> Well, I was going to mention it. It's it's it seems to me at least you know one of the themes that I see throughout you know you, you know your different experiences with companies is pulling in um, you know other voices right and and certainly with Sierra Designs you know that focus on um, you know people who aren't being served um, and in this case women you know making product for women. Um, I, I how much do you feel like that contributed to that that turnaround? We had technical chops and we did tents and we did the idea of um, uh, women's sleeping bags actually came from my Everest trip. Um, and the, um, but in outerwear, creating a position, it was people were making women's product, but they weren't making it the same way. And I had, you know, I had really respected specialty retailers tell me, Sally, you know, there's no way they'll, you know, women won't buy it. It'll be, you know, terrible. You'll have so much markdown. You have to give me so much more margin and all this stuff. And, and really, if it hadn't been REI and Candace Johnson and stuff believing, we wouldn't have been able to make that pivot. And so we went from being destitute in outerwear to three or four years later winning vendor of the year in outerwear. And um, it took some people amplifying our voice or it wouldn't have happened. Right. It, it seems like, especially during that time, this reliance on having someone buy it from you was, I mean, it was critical, right? It's like having uh, an REI being willing to take a chance on it, right? It was huge. Um, but I will also give credit to Gore. And I'd done a lot of Gore-Tex and knew all the Gore people from North Face. But um, the owners of Sear Designs, and this was my other lesson in capitalism, they weren't going to give us a dime to invest in it, right? Mm. Um, and Gore came through with, I think, $300,000 of, you know, collaborative marketing and, we had Sharon Leacham write a book about how to sell to women for the retailers, which I do have a copy of. I will make sure you get a copy of that. Yeah, that'd be great. And, um, and actually she would be an interesting interview, but um, it was, uh, you know, we began to, we began to finally get people on board. I mean, it was everything. Um, and I think Gora was looking at their white space and saying, well, we should grow this and uh, why not? But it wouldn't have happened if, uh, I hadn't sold acres of the product probably before elsewhere. Um, and it took every ounce of that. And, um, and it was unfortunate because, I mean, Kelwood was not that well managed. They were later brought, bought and broken up. But, um, you know, George Grabner was a believer. And then they were like, well, how big can this be? Um, so it was, uh, but we had an incredible culture of, of um, uh, of folks there com really trying to honor where that brand came from and and take it the next. And so it ended up being tremendously fun and, and, and sad for us all. Basically, I think, you know, a per one person moved basically out to Colorado and they basically, you know, went through periods of transition after that with the Calwood breakup, I think. Right, right. Um, was it during this time that you got involved with Outdoor Industry Women's Coalition? Because that, that you know, was 96, but. Um, what's so funny is, uh, you know, at, at North Face, I had, um, Ann Kirchick didn't report to me. She ran customer yeah. service. But I said, look, Ann, you, she loved Yosemite and she loved, and she was, I said, look, we need, 
somebody handling the relationship with all these climbers, you know, and it was, it wasn't just climbers, it was climbers, skiers and riders. And we didn't call them athletes back then. They didn't want to be called athletes, by the way. Um, and Anne began to do that. So Anne and I, um, it, one, made her interested in her job. So that was good. And two, it was, um, it worked out, it worked out good, great for everybody in that situation. And so she's the one who, um, she'd been around the industry a lot. I think she started in retail in Santa Cruz, maybe. She and uh, Carolyn wanted to have this cocktail party. So literally, I've never been on the board. I've talked to, you know, I've helped them out at different times. I've done a bunch of things. They've been generous with their recognition and I've supported it financially in other ways, but I've actually never been on the board there. Hmm. So um, there's lots of great people who have been, and but, um, but, you know, from the beginning, it was very easy to, it was a party. And that was the greatest, actually, that was its strength, I think. And Anne always kind of advocated, to, you know, certainly you can have this education part, but let's make it fun. Um, and it went through some periods where it got a little too education and maybe not as much fun. And like everything else, it's evolved. Um, so that's, I, I don't literally, aside from helping to host the party, I don't, I can't claim that I did a ton. Right. Was that, so that was 96, kind of that first party or around that time? It had to, boy, I don't know. I'd, lo- I'd love to dive in more to, and I, I wish Anne were here so we could talk to, to her more about, you know, the origins and it would, it'd be great to, to shed some more light on, on the early days of that, like the seeds of, of that idea. And maybe, you know, she shared that with you, but I was curious, you know, it, but well, it, I, I, yeah. I bluntly know that Anne was like, look, it's hard to find women in this industry. We ought to have a party. <laughs> and she and Carolyn Cook and Carolyn, I think was at Merrill then. And I could hook you up with Carolyn. I probably even have some stuff from, I'll look and see. Yeah. I can tell you, I know I can tell you, it was in Reno. So we'd have to go back and be like, when was the, the first one was in Reno. I remember it actually very clearly. And it was, it was extraordinary because, I mean, aside from Kitty Bradley Lowe, and I mean, there were a handful of women. There were tons of women in lower level positions, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that was part of the, the sad thing of, um, there weren't as many, and I would give Patagonia immense credit, and Yvonne's always on the record for saying he thinks women are better team players, and that's why he's had them. Uh, but uh, anyway, I think you know, I'd, have to, I'd have to refresh my memory on the dates. Yeah, and I, I think we, we probably have some materials from maybe during the education phase of the organization. Mm-hmm. It seems like there was a little more paper being produced when it was, you know, there education was focused, of, but there's a lot of that because it did come under OIA briefly mm. and under 90 Cooley was doing it then. And there was a very heavy education part, but it wasn't probably actionable education. Right. Uh, necessarily. Right. Um, I, I prefer the, the, the networking I think is, is proven to be, um, super helpful for people. That's at least my outside opinion, but there's plenty of board members. So I'm not, <laughs> uh, you can talk to them. Okay. Uh, but it was, and I'm assuming that first, that cocktail party was at uh, outdoor retailer in Reno when it was in Reno. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and we didn't even touch on retailer. that. We didn't touch on your involvement in early outdoor retailer. What, what well, did you, what was your connection to those early shows? We just that we just that we went. Just as I participants. That, uh, 
Yeah. I mean, obviously, it was a tight industry then. I think Jack can get some of the Miller Friedman and those guys. Mm -hmm. He's the right one to talk to about that. Yeah. Um, but they were, let me tell you, the Reno shows were terrifically fun. Hmm. It was a small town. It was, it was great. And, and I do remember when I started, it was weird, right? You would, you'd wear, you had to dress up like in Sunday clothes <laughs> um, to go to the SIA show. And I lied my way into the SIA show. I said I was a buyer at some shop to get in when I was trying to find a job. And I was camped out at Red Rocks. And I would then go in the bathroom and put on my blue blazer and skirt and go in to SIA to basically lobby for a job. And then the outdoor portion of our line, SIA was only for skiing, and the outdoor portion of our line had to be in what they called the snow show, which was literally at the time in the same building, though sometimes not, in a separate booth. So if you can imagine how far the industry came from, ski was sort of king, thought of itself as king, though it was dying at the time. We didn't know it yet, but um, an outdoor was kind of rising. But it needed to be separated because it was treated so badly. Right. I mean, it was it was that weird. It's kind of and, and at the time, of course, REI, uh, Lee Turlington and I basically opened REI for the North Face, and that was probably '86. And REI was thought of as discounters, so that was because of the co-op rebate. Mm. So that's well, how much the industry's changed. Well, now now to see the industry come full circle and outdoor retailer snow show, it's you know combined, right? So that's interesting. Um, well, I you know from there, um, you know you you make the jump to to Camelback as the CEO. I, I guess maybe, and I know there was there's some gaps between Sierra Designs and and Camelback. Well, the gap is important to complete the circle. So right, I decided. Absolutely. When they were leaving, they were nobody let, wanted to go to Colorado. Um, they thought everybody's like Sierra Designs in Colorado. That doesn't make any sense. But uh, you have to think the dot com bubble had burst, mm -hmm. and so the owners were like, "Oh my God, the Bay Area is so scary!" Right? I mean, mm -hmm. the irony is, um, it was going to become a great time to be in the Bay Area, but mm -hmm. the the dot com thing was sort of a crazy period of keep you know, the salaries, it was, it was a crazy period out here. So I then came back to realizing that the capital of these companies and who controls it, what their values are is incredibly important. And <laughs> I'd worked for somebody I perceived really was in it for um, either didn't know how to have cost-effective capital and, and drive the business for what I thought the brand should be. And again, this is me, a little self-righteous youngster. I was like, yeah, you know, I wasn't, profit wasn't the highest motivator, but of course, I think that you create more value when you create something meaningful for people. And then we, I went to basically somebody that should have been an investor in apartment buildings and not in what could be a high-growth brand. And I watched the women who founded Moving Comfort lose their company during a sourcing crisis, probably because they didn't have capital options. And I watched Royal Robbins really, Royal and Liz probably didn't know exactly what they were doing when they sold 51% of Royal Robbins. And then I watched Marmot sell for a fortune in Wall Street for these bankers. And I thought, well, there ought to be somebody from the industry that does this that can help these entrepreneurs either not lose their company or if they want to sell, guides them through this because you only get to do it once unless you're a serial entrepreneur. 
So a banker that I respected, Nate Pund, who'd sold Mountain Hardware, um, he looked like he was 12 at the time, um, and I became partners, and we founded what's called Silversteep Partners. Silversteep comes from a Robert Sturvis poem. And, um, and we basically just said, we'll talk to anybody, no matter how small, because if you're small, you really can't get this advice. Um, but we also, we were shockingly successful. I mean, we sold Helly Hansen, we sold Eagle Creek, we sold Montreal. Um, we did the service that I imagined. Um, and it was very educational for me to see the whole experience of finance. And during that time, I was asked to be on the board at Camelback. And I first said, no, I, you know, I had no idea why they paid that much for Camelback. And, and it was owned by private equity. And I was interested in private equity, what they would do. But I would said no. And then they came back and said, you know, please come on. And I thought, well, we're trying to, private equity is going to be this force in the industry. I should understand it. Like, what do you do when you pay too much for a company? So I went on the board and that was fascinating. Um, and we fired a CEO and we hired somebody and we fired them. And then they're like, well, you have to be CEO. And I'm like, I do not. You know, so because by this time, I knew a lot more. Um, so I, I was a little tired of being an investment banker because I kind of like to sink my teeth into projects versus you're, you do deals. And, you know, I didn't want to do deals all my life. Um, I thought the need was there. And they went on. Silversteep continued to be very successful. And then they sold out to DA Davidson eventually. Um, but I thought, well, I could do an operating gig again. Um, so I basically said, look, I don't know if this will be successful, but the only way you're going to get your money back at this point, because they bought it when the military business was huge at Camelback and that was declining rapidly. And they hadn't, they were basically hands-free hydration. They were militantly hands-free hydration, right? So it's not a very big market or a catchy phrase. So um, my premise was hydration is going to be important in a broad sector and let's, let's do this. But I said, you'll have to put in money because you've put so much debt on it. It's, I don't think if we get this straightened out, you'll need to support it. So, and the people who owned it were called Bear Stearns Merchant Banking. Mm. So I'll never forget being at, we were vendors of the year at REI and my um, sales VP and I were there, Elaine Rigney, at, and they did, they invited you to a leadership conference. And I think Sally Jewell was speaking and he hits me and goes, look, and Bear Stearns was plummeting that day, right? That was the day of the collapse, basically. And um, I was scheduled to go out with my CFO and ask for money. We basically, we had a growth path now. We were going to get money. So literally, we're out there the day after Bear Stearns is bought by J.P. Morgan. Everybody is walking out with their box, you know, the whole place is obliterated. And I was like, well, I don't know about our odds. And we go into what they call the investment committee. And, um, and we got like the 15 million we needed to do the recapitalization. Um, they were like, Bear Stearns had stepped into the shoes. They're like, well, we either write this all off or we double down. And so that was an interesting, that was kind of the, the epitome of my capital cycle. And then we went through two sales at Camelback. But, um, but Camelback was really fun because it was a, 
um, it was in the bike business, it was in the military business, and it was in outdoor, and you had to be authentic and hardcore in those spaces, and then broaden to a larger audience, because our, our vision was to obsolete disposable single-use bottled water, and we were really core in those three areas and had ex- extraordinary product development. Um, but we had to go on the tour of pain to, you know, REI and a bunch of other people to say, look, we're a mission driven company and we can't eliminate disposable water. It's just selling at REI, right? We're going to have to sell at target for our water bottles and they're not going to ruin the price and we're going to get to a different market. But and we chose to do that and do that up front. And, and honestly, it didn't affect their business at that point. And so we opened it up. We sold once. We sold again. And fortunately, we sold to a financial, I mean, a strategic buyer that I think was a very poor fit. And a lot of people left the company after that. But I would say the nine years I was there were um, great, um, a great culmination of a lot of different things. It was really fun. It was in the old days, the outdoor industry was very much in the outdoor sports and cycling was a different world. Cycling still is a little bit of a different world, but it's, uh, it was fun to be in all those spaces. And it was, uh, you know, it was a tr- again, a tremendous team. Um, it is an honor to work there. Right. It seems like kind of similar to, um, similar in a way to Sierra Designs, but different in others. It seems like a, a, another theme, right, is this idea of broadening you know, the activities that people are participating in. It's like, you know, and that's just, you know, the right thing to do, but also translates into being good for business, right? Um, like getting out of just being a, a military supplier, right? Um, or, you know, just in the bike industry, yeah. you know, can be really limiting. It might feel really good, right? To, to, to you know, get, get those military contracts in a way, but, but to be able to, to broaden that base, right? And, and reach more people, who can participate, you know, using your product in, in different activities has got to feel really good. And so it, it kind of seems like that, that was a, a big theme for, for you at that time was, you know, ex- expanding um, the, the reach, reaching more people where they're at and the activities they're participating in. Yeah, I think the art was staying core enough and responsive enough, not leaving the people that brought you to the party behind while broadening. And that was threading a needle. And now it's, I think, become a bit more accepted, and I think that's a good thing. But you're right; I hadn't thought about it that way. It's, um, it's definitely a theme. What are What are some of the innovations that that you were most proud of during that time? It seems like that that product, that category, is just one that's ripe for for innovation. Um, I know, I know, there's a few in there, um, but what what were some of the highlights there for you when it came to product development? Well, I think being on the cusp. In fact, we were six weeks away from making all of our bottles BPA free before people mm-hmm. heard of BPA. Right. And when the Today Show came on, somebody called me on my drive in and they're like, I think you better watch this. And we, I remember <laughs> I was answering the phones for a while because people were calling up, you know, worried that our bottle had caused cancer, right? And so we weren't going to let, you know, we were like, okay, we're, we're all on the front lines of this. And, um, I mean, in point of fact, bottle bottle was probably the, like your money and everything else, your receipts were bigger, way bigger issues on BPA, but it didn't matter. Right. Because reality is perception, but we were, you know, six weeks away from getting that done anyway. 
Um, and I think we destroyed maybe a million dollars worth of product. I mean, that was a case of, again, being true to what you believe, making sure and, and being true that you could, we, we had to get BPA out of this tiny little thing on our bite valve bottle, but the, the Eddy bottle became, um, it allowed a lot of people who couldn't drink from bottles very easily to drink from bottles and enhance people's um, hydration levels. So the Eddy bottle, the All Clear, which I don't think they make anymore, was the hardest. I think we spent three years getting that past the EPA on UV. We built a, it was a culmination, not of my work, but of, I think it was a 12-year project of a chemically, biologically and chemically hardened reservoir for the military, which mm. um, was extraordinarily hard product development piece. Um, and um, God, we had just had endless, we had endless innovations there because with hydration, you can do, we have this picture that I think got Britta to change how their picture was done. It didn't prove to be a commercial success, but honestly, it's still in my refrigerator today. Hmm. And I still get people asking me how to get that. Um, so the product there was, you know, it was um, incredibly fun and it was very engineered. And we also brought back, I mean, we had this great plant in China, but we also repatriated because of the carbon footprint, making it in the USA. We were way ahead on, on that. We ran a plant in Mexico, which became lean manufacturing. So all of these, how you manufacture and how you design is always so intertwined. And I'm grateful for the North Face for, I've understood that from, a, you know, the beginning of my career. So I think being, um, while we were even owned by private equity, we were, we articulated our values, we articulated our mission and our vision and stayed 100% true to that. <clears throat> right. And, um, and that was part of what was so exciting there. And to this day, I use Camelback products and I have each, at each company, like there are several products at Sierra Designs, which are, I think are, I still see the beauty of living out here is you still see some of that. And when I go skiing at Tahoe, I see some of my worst mistakes in product still on the mountains. Um, so I'm happy to say that from each company, there's pieces that, you know, I'm proud of that I was associated with. But, you know, I'm not a designer. I'm definitely my thing is this is what I think we need and who can we bring together. And I think bringing together those people and then holding tight to a vision of, yes, it's going to work and it's going gonna, it's gonna to work for a network of people. Right. Well, while, while you weren't hands-on sketching out the products themselves, um, I mean, you, you saw a lot of products through that process um, at different levels. Um, are there any that stick out to you that, you know, you saw in the wild for the first time and you were an instrumental part in, you know, or, you know, at, at various levels in helping produce that product? Did, did you have any, did you have a first moment where you noticed a product out in the wild that you had been a part of? You know, that's a fun question. Um, I'm sure it happened at the North Face, right? I mean, I'm sure, like, I beat up on Mark for the four-pound tadpole and tent and um, uh, the, you know, I, um, and obviously the expedition systems, a lot of those concepts came out of my Everest trip. Um, I don't remember it as much. I think one of the one of the really fun ones was the women's sleeping bag, the Annie Oakley and the Calamity Jane. I mean, we sold 18,000 of those bags wow. um, in year one, and which is an extraordinary amount of bags to sell. 
Um, and I took a lot of grief on that. And I was just like, wait a minute, you specialty shops are selling women who are making 68 cents on the dollar a heavier bag that's harder to heat because you know they're asleep colder than men. But yet we're making one that has insulation at the right places and has, you know, is more the right size. And um, so I was getting pushback from shops. Meanwhile, Will Steger was like, I'm short and this is a better built bag and I'm going to use this. Hmm. I mean, um, so uh, I think that one, you know, I remember that because I definitely took quite a bit of heat for it, which is so odd because it's such a clear usage. It's not trinket and pink it. It's nothing mm-hmm. like that. Um, but uh, that one may, that one's particularly memorable. That and the Pontetorto range of fleece. We get man and brought us Pontetorto, this Italian fleece, and it was single layer of beautiful fleece. And we did some classic stuff in that. And um, I still get notes from people about that, that mm-hmm. line. I mean, so there's some of those that are for various reasons. Um, but I have to say, I probably, I, I can't say that I was great at ski wear. And when I had to do probably two years of ski wear at North Face, I do see, I do cringe sometimes when I see those on the slopes. So I think it's human nature to worry about some of your failures. But I guess it's, an, I guess it's a good thing that you're still skiing in it. And now it's kind of classic, ugly 80s. So, <laughs> Well, that, that, that part, even if you're not, especially proud of certain items, it, it does have to feel good seeing some of those original pieces being used still. I mean, that's the point, right? It's hopefully, yeah, I, never, I never had a quality. I never worked anywhere in the outdoor industry where I felt like it wasn't meant to last for a long time and people didn't stand behind it. And um, that's, you know, I think that's a, it's so easy to work in the outdoor industry. And yeah, we're all creating consumer products and we're creating some waste, but we're definitely creating things that last. Yeah, that's good. You you didn't you don't feel like you ever had to compromise on that. Um, it kind of leads me into my next question. Really, how how did you maintain that? How did you keep? I, I think when I go to the outdoor retailer show, or you know, used to in person, um, you know, sometimes you walk around the show and you just see a lot of you know. You could take labels off of every jacket and line them up, and you know, in some ways, it's you know, you can't tell a difference between all the the puffy jackets. Right. Um, and so there's a lot of that. It's like, Oh, change the zipper here, change the colorway, you know, for every season. Um, you know, obviously there's still a lot of good, um, there, there's, there's a lot of good, a lot of innovation, a lot of good product being made. How did you, um, keep yourself from just making more stuff for more stuff's sake? How did you push yourself to, to be a part of, um, organizations and teams and push your teams to, to make stuff that actually matters? I, I don't think it's any great accomplishment on my part. It's probably how I think. Mm-hmm. And it has to sort of make sense in a big picture to come to the small picture. I think that's probably why I stunk at ski wear because the conventional wisdom was that you needed to have different collections. Mm. And so the ones that failed didn't always have a reason to be. They might have been straight fashion. I will say that there was one time that I failed um, that I didn't use the spec that I would have liked. And that was in the building out the expedition systems. I'd used what was called the Denali jacket. I still have it at two pounds of down on Everest, but it had a heavy external fabric. And, you know, I probably would have wanted to use Gore, but I think honestly there were 
It might have been when they were doing their guaranteed to keep you dry and that inhibited design. Actually, that made things look too much alike, frankly, till Arcteryx came along. Um, but we, I made it in this coated fabric. It's called the Sagamartha Parker, which is another name for Everest. And that's the one that I was like, well, this is kind of weird. You know, we only made like 500 because not that many people have that use for that much down. And I was like, well, that's weird. We've sold out. And I looked at it and I was like, we've sold out in Detroit. And I didn't know it at the time, but basically it became, it was, you know, drug dealers and stuff standing out on the street buying that jacket. Mm. So like unintended consequences, but that was one that was not, it later I think became Pertex or Gore or whatever else as it should have been. But I think of that one time where you're hitting a price point or something and you didn't call it the right way. And I think that uh, that happened very few times. And I would say that people underestimate how important it was as China was developing, that the designers of this industry got freedom in incredible sewing, incredible techniques. Um, and, you know, and for a while there, I have plenty of friends at Gore, but Gore didn't get their textiles on time and Malden didn't get their stuff on time. And, and that's where going to Ponte Torto or going to uh, Japan. Now I went to Japan to source um, fabrics and stuff and um, going globally push that because you need fabrics and you need um, the ability to do different sorts of sewing. And, and then there became the innovation of making it simple again. And, um, and that, that has a little to do with fashion and stuff, but I think that's what Sierra Designs was pushing ahead of its time. I mean, Sierra Designs did well ahead of its time, uh, way ahead of the Merino lines. And, um, but some of those timeless designs um, in striking that balance has always been a super interesting part for me. And then of course you were, I think you said it earlier, you were prescient in the, the retailers were gatekeepers. So, um, and I remember uh, one of my reps saying, I was Al Gunner saying, you know, reps can't tell you, they can tell you what's selling. They can't tell you what's going to sell. Mm. And so I think there is for as much as the corporate consolidation is, there's a lot of direct consumer. And I just bought some lightweight gear for, backpacking again I'm getting older I want the lightest gear again it's like it's back to that cycle of of where there are more garage businesses and stuff and they may not scale the Jeff same way or ever but there is a renaissance in um, accessibility and in, in, in the maker movement that I think is also exciting and kind of returns us right no absolutely I, I totally agree um, I, I guess with that said just to kind of wrap up I guess you know, your, your time with, with Camelback 2016, you, you stepped down. Is that right? Yeah, we sold in uh, August of 2015 and I stepped down January of 2016. Right. Um, so that frees you up in a way. I'm sure sometimes you you probably feel like you're busier than ever still. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, with, with that, you, you get a little more time to, to go and, and actually do what this is all about, right? Go outside, you know, get out there, enjoy um, the outdoors. What are some some of the brands that now stand out to you? Some of these up and coming ones, um, or the the garage brand, uh, brands that are out there. You know, who's who's doing interesting things out there from your perspective? Now that you probably get to sit back and and be a user again. Yeah, it's funny because of course I have friends in a lot of brands, so I'm loath to I'm loath to. Uh, um, say some of that. I've got my, an Ulta pack over there that I actually ended up liking quite a lot. Mm. 
and I've been more in the ultra lightweight and I like, you know, I like honestly bio light spin on that whole category. And I think Jonathan Cedar is a super interesting leader. Um, he's a new generation. What he's doing, combining power in Africa along with some of his, uh, like his headlamps, I think are awesome. Mm. Um, and so I think in interesting areas that there hadn't been innovation, there's beginning to be innovation again. And I think, like you see, basically you could take the designs from the 1960s and Herschel, which is not, quote, in the outdoor industry, you know, they've made a fortune. It's probably a $200 million company taking our looks and doing it somewhere else. But what I like is that there's not as much, I like the breakdown of, um, outdoor activities and what's outdoor and what's fashion. And I think that mashup's a lot of fun. So I see brands experimenting, but I also see in the hard goods area, beginnings of real innovation and um, dispersed power. And honestly, it's fun to see the, um, it's fun to see what van life has done uh, in some of these other areas. So I don't want to go too much into which brands I like. And I will say that two weeks after I left Camelback, I, fractured my ankle in three places skimboarding. So don't, that was oh, too wow. old to be skimboarding. So it set me back, but I'm spending more time, uh, hopefully skiing this year and, um, mountain biking. That's the North rim behind me. Um, and, um, look, bike is an area where you think the outdoor is obsessed with gear. I mean, bike, you could, um, you could spend $50,000 at the Euro bike without blinking. Um, right. So I'm, I'm happy that there are people making niche products and, um, and then I think there are other older brands being renovated and then there's brands from uh, outside this country that, you know, I'm looking at that I think are, you know, have something to offer the U.S. to. That's kind of fun. Right, right. No, Absolutely. Um, I, I wanted to to ask you, well, I wanted to run through the seven habits of, of Sally McCoy. Yeah. I, I read this um, out there. This was written out there, but um, I wanted to go through the seven habits and then ask you a question about them. So number one, leave everything better than you found it. Two, know who owns your company and what their goals are. Three, they can't say no if you don't ask. Four, choose the company culture wisely. Five, network. It's okay to be transactional. Six, set goals. Seven, care about what you do and how you do it. It's funny. A lot of these points have come up throughout our conversation naturally. Um, I, I think it's great that these are written out. Um, from your perspective, do any of these resonate with kind of just where you're at right now and, and, and what you're doing? I know you, you were involved in the Outdoor Foundation um, as the chair just recently, but stepped step down from that. But right now, just in the current state of, of your life, any of these jump out at you or, or resonate, especially now? I think they're all still true, right? I mean, I think it's pretty simple philosophy when you boil it down to that. But I think that um, it's every one of those is, I do think you have to leave it better than you found it. I do think you, um, obviously, we've dwelt a lot on capital. Um, and culture is terribly important. So I've been able to, I was on the Zoomies board from, 2010 and I stepped down as lead director this year um, but I'm on two public boards and with different capital structures but culture is terribly important anywhere 
And I think cultures with articulated values um, is, I'm only interested in that and I've only worked with companies that um, are interested in, you have to get up every day and live your values, right? You have to get up every day and live your mission. Um, and you have to be willing to look at it and say, how do we need to change? So I think the way I've done a bunch of, I've got kids who are now juniors in, in high school, so I've been able to spend a bunch of time uh, with them. And um, my wife's working on a book. So it's been really fun to be a participant. And those values actually 100% stay the same. I'm still on the Outdoor Foundation board supporting that. And I think that that's, I always try to make sure I have one nonprofit. I'm giving a significant amount of time to. Um, and then I'm, I basically looked at things of like, what can I give something to? What can I learn something from? Because I'm not very good if I'm not learning. It doesn't keep my interest. And then, um, but I'm beginning to, I've had kind of a portfolio activity. I'm beginning to narrow it down and I'm looking at an interesting project potentially that I'll pick up and skinny some things down. So I'm still, uh, um, I'm still interested in, in those four, those seven things. I hadn't thought about them as my habits, but they guide, uh, they sort of guide what I'm interested in. I mean, I think the election's taken up a lot of people's time this year and how do you participate in democracy? And I see that as enormously important. I think this decade's going to be a tumultuous one. So I do think the outdoor industry may have a significant role to play in that. To being outdoors is very bipartisan. Um, ironically, it's probably the only thing that's been done uh, this year that um, there's great support on both sides of the aisle for. It was the Great American Outdoors Act, and I feel like we've been lobbying for that as an industry since, well, forever, but certainly since 93. So um, I think uh, there's, there is a, there's still a voice out there for all of us, and I think it'll be interesting for the industry to, as it around the trade show, I think personally when there's a vaccine people will want to congregate and is it a trade show or is it something like the rendezvous or how are we going to do it? And, um, but I think the industry should be aware it's part of something special. I realize there's a lot of executives feeling tremendous amount of pressure. Um, but I think you've always got to keep your eyes open on what you're a bigger part of because we're a tiny industry. Mm -hmm. And uh, but I will say the community has been more valuable much as, and I do love product and I do love organizations, but the community writ large is, um, you know, it's worth your time. That's great. Um, you know, maybe kind of a last question, unless you have some other thoughts that you want to share before you before we wrap up. But, you know, I read that once, um, when you were 10, you know, you were, uh, you, you told your dad that you wanted to be a ranger because that's the job that you could do and, and work outside. Um, he gave you a response that I thought was interesting, if you don't, if you don't mind sharing that. Um, that's the one where he said, I remember actually where I was when I asked him that, but he said that that was probably a good job because it would be a, still be a man's world when I was an adult. Is that what you're thinking of? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and that, you know, that pissed me off. Um, he was telling me the truth mm -hmm. uh, and he knew how much I love the outdoors and he did too. Um, and, um, 
you know, and I've gotten, I've been blessed, you know, I Sally Jewel is a counter among friends and I've certainly known a lot of people in the interior. Um, but I think, I think he was, uh, I was feisty and ornery and I was like, well, that's got to change. And, you know, there has been real progress and look, um, Kamala Harris stands a decent chance of becoming vice president. And I think that's great. Um, but I think it's the, um, I never, I never really let that kind of define me. I mean, I didn't think, I didn't think twice that I was, I assumed people would change. And if I look back now, I look back at, you know, I look back at my college, I look back at the outdoor industry and, and certainly there were a lot of really progressive people, um, and women too, women are a part of the culture. So you see women who are against, I wrote my college thesis on women who oppose suffrage and women who oppose DRA. Mm. Um, but um, you're all part of the culture, but it has changed and gotten broader. And um, it's my hope that it still continues to. And the outdoor industry's big awareness with our, you know, we're, I think heart's always in the right place, but how do we do it? How do we broaden it? How, do we, how are we more welcoming? Um, and I think experimenting with different ways of doing that is going to be our, our next challenge. And look, it, being open to more cultures is going to change the fashion and the products and everything else. And I think that's tremendously exciting. Like I, I think about D.G. Rinhard, who was a, um, a woman who worked at REI for years. And she retired at one point from REI. And she used her life savings. And D.G. is African-American to create a plus-size women's clothing line. This might have been 15 years ago. And it was really pre-Shopify and Internet. Mm -hmm. So um, it, it wasn't commercially successful. So she ended up going back to Nordstrom's and then back to REI. But I think of that sort of a pioneer. And I think of there's a DG Renhard now and there's a Shopify. And um, there's an industry. And look, it's very difficult to talk about cultural competency. And it's a real challenge. and um for all of us for me for sure and but i think that's the outdoor industry our hearts are in the right place and we'll trundle forward and we can't be afraid to not try um right well in this this whole series that we've been doing is all about the history of the industry but i i like to tease out okay where where is the industry may potentially leading us in the future and so i i like leaving this more on uh on that optimistic note of of the future of the industry being really bright and i i see that too and and we're all a part of you know trying to find actionable ways of of making that happen um and learning you know looking back in the past and seeing kind of where we've been and hopefully that helps lead us to where we're going i think is a positive thing but um you know what what are, are there any things that we missed? I know you, you've just, you've done so many things in this industry. I wanted to make sure we covered it all and, and we haven't done it justice nearly. Um, you know, oh, there's, there's tons of, uh, there's tons of stories and things, but um, certainly in certain terms of the major pieces that, uh, that, you know, are the arc so far of my life we've hit. I was going to say that, I mean, there's a whole, there's a few more chapters, plenty more chapters uh, to be told that, I mean, that was the same thing that I ran into with Jim and Greg Thompson. Like they've kind of had multiple chapters, um, you know, when we kind of went through the different eras of their, their careers. Um, I mean, there's, there's a whole nother um, 
you know, I'm, I'm sure there's plenty more coming. I'm sure you're incubating on that right now. Um, so we'll, we'll do a part two at some point if you'd ever want to do that. All right, Jason, um, if I can be of use to you. Well, you know, I, this has been really helpful um, and appreciate your willingness to, to help connect us with other people um, who are instrumental in, in the building up of this industry. And, um, you know, we're just interested in helping tell those stories. So appreciate you being willing to share yours. Oh, it's an honor. Thank you. And I'll be happy to do some work and I'll be in touch on email on those other topics. Okay. Sounds good. Well, thank you. All right. Thanks, Chase. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Highlander podcast. For more conversations with outdoor industry leaders and enthusiasts, subscribe and listen wherever podcasts are found or on opdd.usu.edu slash podcast. 